Hop Talk and Aliens, the William Clear Podcast. Thank you, young lady. You may be excused from the courtroom. You have done everything we asked and so much more. The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I am William Clear. This is Pop Talk and Aliens, and it is a podcast, and it is the 2023 Halloween episode, or as I like to call it, the Halloween episode. I love Halloween. I, I always look forward to this episode, even if, uh, you know, sometimes it's it's a little uh, maybe jumbled or not entertaining to you because it's me talking about stuff that I watched that Halloween, which is exactly what this episode is going to be. But I, I hopefully hopefully it'll be entertaining to you. I don't know. Uh, that it's that's up to you to decide, not for me. I will I will do my best to entertain you. But I will tell you this about Halloween. I it's my favorite holiday by by far, because and look I'm not dissing on Christmas. I love Christmas. It's wonderful. But Halloween is like, it's like you get the kind of thing that you get with Christmas, but without any of the work on the back end. It's like you get wonderful, fun decorations. You get, and look, I know that's not what Christmas is about. That's not the point. It's not a comparison. Just saying as a holiday, you know, 4th of July is another favorite holiday of mine, but it's not like a whole season. It's just the day. It's a weekend. Halloween, you get the whole month. Get to decorate the movies that are like devoted to Halloween, songs that are devoted to Halloween. If you got kids, they get they're gonna have the fucking time of their lives trick or treating and wearing costumes of their favorite superhero or whatever. It's so little work, so much reward. Unlike this particular episode of the podcast, which, ladies and gentlemen, I'm gonna tell you was this was not an easy one. I really was looking forward to the fall of the House of Usher, and it did not disappoint me. Spoiler alert. And there will be spoilers about that show. I really, really liked it. But every time I do a show, I am not a reviewer. I am not a critic. Uh, I am not up on everything that's popular. I just like what I like. And when I do shows, whether it be about aliens or a movie or an album or whatever the fuck it is, as I've said before, my whole thing is I'm not going to pretend to be any sort of accredited professional. I am going to look for things that orbit that particular subject, tell you the story of it, and then try and consolidate and curate a bunch of things about it into one podcast that you can listen to and be like, that's cool. Now I know all about not only that alien story, but like what went into it and what people think of it. Or uh, now I know all about, uh, I saw House of Usher, and now I know all these interesting facts about uh, you know how it was made and stuff. Couldn't do that with this show because of the goddamn actor strike. So I couldn't do what I normally do, which is hey, go through YouTube, watch some interviews, read some articles about it, get some quotes from the actors and the director and tell you all about, uh, hey, here, here's what went down. Here's some fun facts. You know, oh, there was this one scene where, uh, you know, Mark Hamill shows up and uh, uh, he, he falls down and, and he makes a joke. It was ad-libbed. N- nothing like that. I got one fun fact on that show and I'll save it for when that show when I start talking about that show. But the rest of it is, I'm going to talk about how it ties into Edgar Allan Poe to, to an extent, because I'm not a Poe expert, but I will talk about that. But that's what I, I always like telling you guys about some shit that I watched this particular Halloween that was amusing to me. Why? Because again, it's the only, I, I love Halloween. It's the only time I watch horror. 
it's the only time it's during Halloween. I'm not like a horror buff. I'm not, I, I don't know the horror genre well at all. And to be honest, most of the horror movies that I watch, I, I kind of deliberately seek out stuff that probably isn't going to be very good and usually isn't. Mike Flanagan, House of Usher, Hill House, all that stuff, that's an exception. Stumbled onto that with Midnight Mass and I absolutely loved it and I think it's high quality. And there are other things, but then there's shit like the Halloween franchise that I love. And I'll watch any of them, including Halloween 3 Season of the Witch. But that's enough about the Halloween franchise. I've talked about that like the last five episodes because they keep making those movies, but they didn't this year. So don't have to talk about that. What I do want to talk about though is that Pop Talk and Aliens is sponsored in part by Audible. Audible is the world's leading, you know what, forget about world's leading they are the platform for audiobooks in the universe. Forget about anything else. Almost 200,000 titles, including original material that is audiobooks only made for Audible, audio dramas with, you know, high-end actors doing full-on old-school radio show type stuff, but with, you know, high quality sound effects, great acting music, all that kind of stuff. It's all available on Audible and you can try it out for free for 30 days and get an audiobook on the house. Audiobook on the house to listen to for 30 days. Edgar Allan Poe, we talked about, uh, we're going to talk about him with the fall of the house of Usher. There's a book on Audible. It's like the complete works of Edgar Allan Poe, 48 hours long. I'm not kidding you. 48 hours of Edgar Allan Poe. And apparently the narrator is like the top of the heap. I forget the gentleman's name, but he only narrates the classics. Like if you want a Moby Dick, I don't know if he does Moby, but stuff like that, right? You want the old man in the sea? This guy reads it. If, if it's top tier, it, it goes to this guy. And he's got 48 hours of Edgar Allan Poe available on Audible which you can try out again for free 30 days, get a free audio book by going to the special link. Special for you because you're here listening and thank you for doing so. Audibletrial.com slash Aliens. That's audibletrial.com slash Aliens. If you would like to follow us on social media at Aliens on Instagram, I uh, generally answer uh, DMs, if you want to send me one. Sometimes I, I don't. I recently got one that was, uh, I, I, I don't know how many words. I, I, should have, I should copy it and paste it into a Word doc just to see how many fucking pages it was. Telling me everything that's going on with aliens. I would read it to you, but it would be an entire episode. Uh, it, it, it's very nonsensical at times. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't get permission from whomever it was because I, I didn't reply to that one. But uh, there are times that people have, uh, you know, messaged me about uh, show questions and stuff like that. Whatever you want. Uh, go ahead and hit me up. Tell me it sucks. That's fine. I, I, I'm, I welcome negative feedback. I mean, I, I don't want it. But it's welcome. At Pop Talking Aliens on Instagram. Or if you want to make a nasty comment about a Star Wars video, we've got a bunch of those up at youtube.com slash at... Pop Talking Aliens. Yes, there is an at symbol in the URL. YouTube.com slash at Pop Talking Aliens. There's also some special shorts and other little things that aren't available on the, the podcast feed. And if you want access to every single podcast I've ever done over the last almost nine years now, 
poptalkingaliens.com. Uh, and speaking of direct messages on Instagram, the reason I, one of the reasons I brought that up was because uh, I, I recently got a couple of them of direct messages from people I don't know recently asking, where's episode three of the Ahsoka review that uh, I was doing with Charlie Crafty? We, we did two episodes uh, during the season and we didn't do a third to wrap it up. And here's the reason for that. And we, we, we may, but here's, here's the deal. The reason we have not yet is because we both want to watch that show in its entirety, like binge the whole thing, and then talk about it on its own terms. Since that show ended, a lot of noise about it. Some people love it, some people hate it, and then there's a lot. there was a lot going on when Charlie and I did those first two episodes. People saying, Ahsoka has saved Star Wars. And then the last two episodes came that we hadn't reviewed yet and a lot of people didn't like them and Star Wars died again. So it rose from the grave and then died in the course of two episodes that we've done and all that chatter, like, like Charlie and I are older Star Wars fans. We, we've, we've been through the ringer with this shit before so we just want to wait till the noise dies. Down. I can't really speak for him. I don't know if that's exactly his reasoning but for me, personally... You know, I, I, I'm taking a break from Star Wars because of the outside chatter that always comes with it. I just want to review the show on its own merits, on its own terms, and I know that Charlie wants to do the same. So we'll, we will get to that. But speaking of Charlie Crabtree, which I always do on the show, why? Why do I do it? Well, for there's a couple of reasons. Here, here's a, a big uh, insight into the show because this is also something people ask me. They say, do you, in, do you intentionally mention Charlie Crafty's name every show? Yes. Uh, because well, he's a frequent guest, obviously. But this podcast started at a table at a Denny's restaurant in Sunnyvale, California in 2015. I don't know if you remember, but there was an app called Periscope back in those days. And it was, I believe, the first live streaming app or if not it was like the first app that was like that did it well and it was bought eventually by Twitter and now obviously every you could fucking live stream with anything but at the time again this is like eight plus years ago it, it was the first one so Charlie and I were uh, at a Denny's and we decided hey, you know this let's fuck around with this periscope thing and we just live streamed to probably two people our entire Denny's conversation which was talking about uh, his cousin's wedding that was coming up it was just whatever and I said at some point I said you know it would be cool to do a podcast if it was like this where we're just talking about like stuff that we like and Star Wars and, and aliens because I think I was telling him like a story about Roswell or something like that and he was very encouraging and through the years Oftentimes he's on the show to talk about things, but there's been other times where, look, I, I am very fragile about uh, performance. You know, I, I want people to like things. I, performing on the stage uh, in my life and stuff, you, you get instant feedback. With a podcast, it's much different. Whenever I start to feel like I don't really know if people like this, yes, I've got a, a nice, comfortable number of subscribers. Very high during COVID times when everyone was listening to podcasts all the time. 
it dropped off to about what it was before, but it doesn't really grow. I don't do much in terms of marketing the podcast. There's a jillion podcasts. So I'm grateful to still have what I had before there were 30 million times the amount of podcasts there were back then. But sometimes, I'll, I'll, I, I don't know, do people like this? Do people want to keep hearing this? Should I keep doing this? It's always very encouraging. Ah, just, you know what, dude, do what's in your heart. You want to talk about fucking whatever Elton John album you like? Do it. You don't, don't do it. And uh, even with this episode, this very episode, had a conversation with him. Because uh, like I was telling you before, I, you know, I had some trouble getting my head around how to talk about Follow the House of Usher, but I wanted to because I really liked it. But I didn't have the angles that I usually have. So he, he helped talk me down off the fucking ledge on that too. So I, I appreciate him. And lastly, about that guy, I don't want to say for sure because I like to leave it up to him. But we have talked about doing an episode together very, very soon regarding Bernie Toppin, who hopefully you know is Elton John's lyricist. And Elton John's my favorite artist. I've done many shows about him. I've never done a show about just Bernie Toppin. I've talked about him a lot, but I've never done a show just about him because he's always been kind of a secretive guy. But now he's got an autobiography out. It's called Scattershot. It's an incredible fucking autobiography. Like a guy that had just all of these incredible experiences that he never even talked about. Even Elton John said, this book tells a life of Bernie that I didn't even know he had. We've texted a lot about it and, and bounced ideas off each other. And he said, you should do a show. I said, I, I don't even know how to fucking, what do I just, how do you address that book? He said, I talk about Bernie Toppin and then, you know, weave that book in. I said, well, why don't you come help? He said that he would. So we'll, we'll, that'll be soon. Yeah, let's talk about Halloween. God damn it. It's another thing about the show. It's long. It's always long. But that, again, it, it, you don't have to listen, but I appreciate that you are. So let me let me tell you something. I Every Halloween, one of my favorite things is to, like I said, I only watch horror during Halloween, try and seek out uh, some some horror stuff that appeals to me. And that usually is around like, like demons, uh, thriller dramas, pos- like possessed people, Ghosts. I love the ghosts. Uh, comedies. Fucking Hubie Halloween. Adam Sandler. In the what you would think, and I'm sure many people do, but is like the lowest hanging fruit that there, you could possibly get with Adam Sandler. Him doing a a dumb guy voice the whole time, saving Halloween. Like the fucking idiot who saves Halloween. I, I love it. I've I've watched it. It's I think it's like three years old now. I've watched it every year. I've seen it probably like four times now total. Absolutely love Hubie Halloween. It's on Netflix. If you like Adam Sandler being a fucking moron on purpose, Hubie Halloween aces. And there's performances by, you know, all kinds of actors that, you know, acting the fool. Adam Sandler's love for Halloween is so obvious and and tangible in so many, so many of the things that he does, like his comedy sketches and stuff, Hubie Halloween is like the culmination of all of it. I absolutely think it's great. Yes, I do. I admit it shamelessly. You know what else I admit shamelessly? Guilty pleasures, getting, you know, uh, talking about Halloween movies. I love <laughs> found footage movies and movies that are like young people doing something that they know, or at least you know as the audience, is going to backfire, and yet they do it anyway, and then you see how it backfires. 
And I, I, I found one, a classic, horrible, but a classic for me this year on uh, Hulu. Hulu has uh, every year their Huluween. They put a bunch of uh, movies out there. I, I don't know how I picked it, but uh, this movie called The Friendship Game, starring uh, Peyton List from uh, Cobra Kai, and she's been in a, a million other things. She's got the resume of a fucking hundred-year-old. She's like in her 20s. Her and her friends, they, they go to this garage sale for, for no reason. It just starts there. It's just no, no, no need to tell you why or what was going on. It's just, ah, they're at a garage sale. We don't have time. Uh, or the money. So there's this garage sale and this creepy old woman shows them this device, this like circular thing. And she's like, hey, you want to buy this? It's 10 bucks. Like, well, what is it? What is it? What does it do? Well, it's a game. It's a game about friendship. And if your friendship survives the game, so do you. Which uh, to me, uh, I wouldn't buy that. I don't like the sound of that. I don't like her attitude, but they buy it. And uh, guess what happens? Uh, their friendships do not survive the game and neither do they. They all turn on each other. They all start killing each other, but the power of the friendship of Peyton List and this one other girl saves them from the, the clutches of this device and, and they get out of its grip. And then all of a sudden they're back at the garage sale. All's well. All their friends alive again. Nobody even remembers what happened. And then they get in the car and they drive away. And then in classic bad horror style, car drives away, the camera pans over to the garage sale. And there's that creepy lady selling that fucking thing to another group of girls. It's going to happen all over again. It was not a good movie. I, I enjoyed it for its camp and, and being bad. But one thing I, I can't stand about horror movies, and this is one of the reasons that I don't watch them like throughout the year, and it's, not, it's just not a genre that I embrace, is that I feel like every time I watch a horror movie, I am, whether it's good or bad, like this movie had, I didn't look, I should have probably, this friendship game, I'm glad I didn't look because then I wouldn't have watched it. it had, it's got like a fucking 3% or something on Rotten Tomatoes. It's like a three out of 10 on, on IMDb. It, it, like nobody who saw it liked it. But whatever, that, I'm, I'm not necessarily looking for the uh, Shawshank redemption of horror movies every year. I just want to see fun stuff. And it was, it was fun and terrible. But one thing about, again, even quality horror movies, it happens all the time. They, they don't have an ending or the ending is something like what I just described where it's like, oh, it's just gonna, it's gonna happen again. That drives me nuts. I feel like I don't care that it's horror. You still owe me an ending. And so often, it's like you decide what happened. Or here's some cryptic thing that you got to make sense out of. You do the work. You do all the fucking footwork. I don't want to do the work. I'm here for a whole story. Look, if you're the storyteller from Terrapin Station, the Grateful Dead song, you don't have to tell the ending. He, that guy in that song, if you're familiar with it, told the story, did not finish to the point where the town tried to literally pay the guy to tell them the rest of the story. But he said his job is to shed light, not to master. And he was telling a very uh, sort of 
psychedelic metaphorical story anyway. So it didn't even really have an ending. It was designed for you to make a choice. A horror movie that starts out with a premise and a bunch of characters and they set the stage and they make the rules. You have to give me the ending. It's not a metaphor. It's, it's, it's people doing stuff and I need to know how it turns out. Uh, I'm going to talk later about Mike Flanagan's House of Usher, which had a good ending. He usually does. Uh, Midnight Club, I'll, I'll get into it later, but one of his shows, Midnight Club, it just, it totally falls victim to that type of ending. So I, I'm always skittish about, I'm going to spend an hour and a half or two hours to, 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 to learn nothing. Uh, one, one of the horror, uh, one of the like franchises of horror that's pretty popular that nails it on endings, the Conjuring movies. Conjuring, I think there's three of them. They all have a fucking like solid ending. And you may like the movie, you may not like it, but it tells its story. A to Z. A to Z, as they say in the uh, UK. There's another movie I watched, also on Huluween. Uh, I'm a little late to the party on this one. I, I know that when it came out, I think maybe last year or two years ago, a lot of, lot of, lot of chatter about it was uh, Hulu's own reimagining of the movie Hellraiser. Now, Hellraiser is not really in my wheelhouse of horror, but I have seen a lot of them over the years. Pinhead, uh, you know, people hanging on meat hooks and the Cenobites and all that, trying to get to hell through this mystery box whatever entertaining uh, like 80s horror uh what is is it clive bark clive barker is hellraiser right i always confuse him with west craven but no he's the freddy movies also like fun that's you know that that kind of horror that's fun so i i watched the the new hellraiser the reimagining i guess it's not a remake apparently it's a reimagining it's all women it's not all women, but it's like all the women, all the men parts in the original are, are, are now women. It's a, the classic gender swap. And for God's sake, please, please don't judge me for saying that. I'm just telling you that that's what it is, right? There, that's the angle. It's funny. It's like uh, it used to be if you made a joke like that, uh, it was safe. I remember there, there's an Albert Brooks movie. I think it's The Muse. It's The Muse. Albert Brooks. I didn't do a fucking episode about him. Uh, Albert Brooks is, uh, he's playing himself or a character like himself in the movie, the muse. And he keeps running and he can't come up with a, a, an idea for a new movie. So he hires Sharon Stone to like, just tell him ideas and, and all they are really is, are just like premises and then the star attached to the premise. So it's kind of making fun of Hollywood that way, but whatever. The point is this, at one point in that movie, which came out in 1999, not that long ago, kind of, but not because he meets, Martin Scorsese has a cameo in this movie where he's talking about how he's going to remake Raging Bull, but with a really thin guy. And he's a classic Scorsese. Not, 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 not normal thin. I'm talking about like, like, like a really, really thin guy. And Albert Brooks is like, okay, well, good, good luck. And uh, later on in the movie, he's like sitting, having dinner and the doorbell rings and he goes, ah, oh, maybe it's Scorsese again. Maybe he's going to make a remake of Taxi Driver with all women. And it's like, it's just a joke. It's funny. No, nobody got offended by it. But now, because they do that a lot, you got to be careful. All I'm saying is that's the thing. That wasn't what is wrong with the new Hellraiser. What was wrong with it was everything. Everything. Look, 
I like a bad horror movie, but there's a difference between a bad horror movie and just a fucking horrible movie. And this was the latter. For the love of God, it was so bad. I fell asleep. Fell asleep during the middle of Hellraiser, a horror movie that the originals are are like, you know, cover your eyes. This is so disgusting. Why can't, please stop. Cut to something else. This guy's on a meat hook. There's blood everywhere. For, oh, Jesus Christ. No. I mean, there were people on meat hooks and stuff, but they were like talking. I'm not kidding. There's a scene where this guy's like got all this shit drilled into him from Pinhead and whatever. Uh, Pinhead's only also the girl Pinhead. I don't, I can't even tell you if she was good or not because she's in it for like two seconds. So I don't even know like her, her take on Pinhead. I don't know what it was. She was only had two lines. But so there's one part where this guy, because it isn't all women. I was just kidding. But this dude, and he's like got all these meat hooks in him and all these fucking devices to torture him and stuff. And he's talking about how it sucks. He's telling these, these people. He's like, he's mildly uncomfortable. But please understand, ladies and gentlemen, that this, this guy, he is full of metallic things in his body to torture him and he is mildly uncomfortable and talking the whole time about how much it sucks to have all this stuff in his body and then the ending when I, when I woke up during the middle of people screaming I, well, there wasn't people screaming again like I said they were just mildly uncomfortable, uncomfortable. when I woke up I was like, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound, I will finish the goddamn movie. And of course, the ending made no sense. And that is, it was like 100%, that is the kind of thing that scares me about horror. That Not scary about the horror, but scares me about watching a horror movie. Is not that I'm going to be scared, but that I'm going to get a shitty ending like that. Or worse, showing me a guy that, is being tortured but it's just talking though i mean needless to say it kind of takes away from whatever kind of gore they're showing when the dude is just saying it sucks it's cartoonish it was weird it was weird that is my conclusion on hellraiser you know what speaking of the gender swapping i i hot button i know but uh th there's a, a brand new south park special on on paramount not halloween related but brand new where they go after Disney and Kathleen Kennedy for gender swapping and race swapping and all that stuff. And that, the reason I'm bringing it up is because it's been championed by people who hate Disney for doing that stuff and woke, woke Disney and all that, hate Star Wars for, look, whatever, I'm not going to get into that part of it, but I will tell you that this South Park, they were championing it as like their ultimate vindication. I watched the episode, it was funny. And in classic South Park style, Matt Stone, Trey Parker, they're not on your side. Whatever side of that debate you're on, they fucking roast everybody. Yes, yes, they dunk on Disney all day. There's all kinds of Kathleen Kennedy stuff. It's not nearly as bad as when they went after George Lucas and Steven Spielberg for raping Indiana Jones, graphic. That episode, I think, is as far as South Park's ever gone. I can't think of another one, and I've seen many, many of them. My son and I, we've been watching it recently, like mining it for the classics. They, they don't go that far, but 
within the course of the episode, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it and intended to, uh, everybody, including the people who are constantly bitching about the wokeness and the gender swapping, are all kind of taken to task in the episode. It's not one side. I mean, it is more one-sided than the other. I mean, they, re they really do fucking hammer on Disney for what they do, but they do it very logically and reasonably. They're not hate-baiting or giving these people, these haters, like meat to chew on. They're, they're, it's very thoughtful. It's well done. It's well put together. And also, in doing so, it uses all these lazy story techniques that it is criticizing. It's very good. It was, I, I was very happy with it. And I, I always like when those two guys just kind of start the middle finger in one direction and you think that's where they're going to stay and then they just 360 around and give you all the middle finger. I, I, I really appreciate that about that show. And it was good. It's called Into the Penderverse. It's on Paramount if you want to check that out. All right, let's talk about the, uh, the centerpiece of my, my particular Halloween viewing this season. And that is Mike Flanagan's The Fall of the House of Usher. Because I am a huge fan of Mike Flanagan. I've seen essentially everything he's done at this point since I saw Midnight Mass a couple years ago. This was his fifth and final uh, contractually obligated, or I shouldn't say obligated, contractually agreed upon show that he made for Netflix. Interestingly, last year, when The Midnight Club came out, and I talked about this on last year's episode, so I, I won't like eat the spinach again, but I said at the time, this felt like a show that was like tacked on. The, the quality of Hill House, Bly Manor, Midnight Mass, and now Usher, so superior to The Midnight Club. I said it, it felt like it was rushed. And, and now that I know that this House of Usher was the last of his uh, you know, contract, it only reinforces my conspiracy theory of sorts that Midnight Club was like a fucking paper that was due the next day that he forgot about. Like, like it was like, Mike, uh, House of Usher is looking really good. Uh, how are you going to follow this one? You know, what's your last show going to be? The, the, the fifth one? There's a fifth one? I thought this was four. I, wait, there's one, there's one due this year? Fuck. Uh, Go into my library, please, somebody, and just uh, grab a stack of books and let's adapt something and we'll put some kids in it. Jesus. Oh, that's what it felt like at the time and more so now. So let's just put Midnight Club aside. Talk about House of Usher. So the big thing is that it's based on the works of Edgar Allan Poe. Heavy emphasis on based on the works of. It is not an adaptation of uh, Edgar Allan Poe's House of Usher story because that is a very short story. And it's about a guy in a haunted house nearing the end of his life who brings a friend over to talk about all the ghosts in his house and stuff. That is like essentially that story and that is the framework that Mike Flanagan uses to set up Roderick Usher, the, the owner of the House of Usher, obviously, and the CEO of this big pharmaceutical company, which he is not in the original story, but in this show he is, he is surrounded by the ghosts of his dead kids. And they've all died in the last week. He's got six kids from five different mothers. So each episode is about 
one of the kids dying and sort of how it happened. And he's relaying this in flashback form to this guy, Augie, who works for the, uh, the attorney general's office who's suing the pharmaceutical company because of all their, uh, their opioid company, all the, you know, like the Sackler family, all the deaths and everything, mislabeling the drugs, false advertising, all that stuff. So it's like Roderick Usher's day of reckoning. And they use this House of Usher idea of a guy in a house full of ghosts telling his friend about it as a jumping off point to have all of these different episodes about how the kids died, which are all either loose adaptations of post stories or basically just sort of an homage to a post story. I'll give you an example that my dad was telling me about because I talked to my my parents about this show. My mom did not watch it. Horror, not her thing. My dad watched it and big fan of, of Poe or certainly very familiar with his works. Here, here's an, I was asking about the tie-ins and everything. I did my own reading and stuff too. But I, I was saying like, you know, how, how close are these things? He used the second episode, The Mask of the Red Death, as an example. He said, the story that Edgar Allan Poe wrote ends with a bunch of people dying in a fire at a party. The episode of the show, The Mask of the Red Death, every show is named after a story. The only similarity is that at the end of that show, one of Roderick Usher's kids dies at a party, and it's not a fire, but they all get burned by this this acid that comes out of the pipes because they're they're having a rave party in this shitty condemned building that the Usher's own. So, like, that's it. The rest of the story is just for the purposes of this Mike Flanagan show. But the them dying in the acid is reminiscent of recalls, if you will, the actual Edgar Allan Poe story, The Mask of the Red Death. Another example, this one a little closer to the Poe story, is episode four, The Black Cat, where uh, obviously another one of Roderick Usher's kids is dying. He's like hallucinating this black cat that his boyfriend has. the, The black cat is in the walls, so he thinks. The actual story from Edgar Allan Poe is this guy who's drunk and he kills his wife and he like stuffs her into the wall with a black cat. And so he hears the black cat like scratching and, and stuff in, in, the, in the wall. So it's, there's more, there's more similarity there. But again, it's not just a retelling of the story. It's not an adaptation. And it certainly has nothing to do with the House of Usher. I'm not saying these as a criticism. I thought the show was fantastic. I think the show... If you like Poe, you'll appreciate the homage to him. If you don't know anything about him, you can just appreciate the show as a story. An interesting story of all all these people dying and then hunting Roderick Usher, telling him how they died, and then him relaying that story to uh, this guy who's taking him down, taking his company down, and he's like, Here's your big confession, Augie. You want it, you got it. I'm going to tell you how my kids died because they told me because they're all ghosts. So another way that Mike Flanagan connects things to Poe is that everybody's name in the show is a Poe character. Um, In some cases, it's just there to be a Poe name. Like there's nothing else to it. It's just just there. For example, Mark Hamill, I'm going to get into his performance in a bit, plays a character named Arthur Pym. 
Arthur Pym has nothing to do with anything that uh, ties into this show. That name is taken from an unfinished story that uh, Poe was writing called the... Uh, hold on, I actually had to write this down. I don't script the show, ladies and gentlemen. If I did, I wouldn't stutter and say, you know, and fucking breathe all the time. Uh, the show, or the I'm sorry, the Poe story was called The Narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket. I don't know if a limerick was involved. Usually Nantucket is followed by a fucking limerick. Can't stand those, but that's where Mark Hamill's character's name comes from, and it has nothing to do with anything. It's just there to be a Poe name. Now, there are different instances where there's an actual sort of tie-in. For example, the name of the pharmaceutical company is Fortunato Industries. And Fortunato is a character from Poe stories that was a criminal that was always being investigated and was always uh, slipping away from the long arm of the law. That, that's, that's a cool tie-in. It's, it's like an Easter egg. But like I said, the stories themselves are loose adaptations or references to Edgar Allan Poe stories. So the, the show itself is meant to be taken on its own terms. One other thing they do that's very well done, I think, is weaving in Edgar Allan Poe's poetry, primarily the the Raven, which is, you know, his probably his famous, his most famous work, what people associate with him. The first episode is called A Midnight Dreary, which is the opening line of the Raven. Even I remembered that. I also remember that there's a fucking blues traveler song that opens with that same line. And it's like, one of those things that earwormed itself into my head for the last 30 years. And so the way they weave the poetry in is that they write it, they wrote in that, that Roderick Usher was in his youth a poet, sort of what he wanted to be. And so he's reciting poetry in flashbacks to his wife, and then he's reciting poetry later on um, as his present old dying self to Augie throughout the course of the show. And it's done very, very well. Bruce Greenwood plays Roderick Usher, and he delivers a performance powerhouse as he always does. Bruce Greenwood is like, I, I feel like just a very underrated actor. Whenever I see him in anything, and he's been in several Mike Flanagan things. Uh, Gerald's Game is uh, was an adaptation of a Stephen King novel that uh, Bruce Greenwood was in. Uh, that's a Mike Flanagan movie, not a show, movie. Uh, he's excellent in that. He's excellent in everything. But here's an interesting tidbit that I did find about the making of the show. I couldn't find many because of the actor's strike. Frank Langella, the great Frank Langella, was originally cast to play Roderick Usher. And apparently he filmed a lot of material for the show, but then made some sort of uh, inappropriate uh, comments or took some sort of inappropriate actions towards someone else involved in the production and they fucking fired his ass and they hired Bruce Greenwood. That's a, a fortunate outcome for the show because as great as Frank Langella is, I can't imagine anyone but Bruce Greenwood playing this role. It seems like it's written for him which in the case of Mike Flanagan, parts are generally written for actors because he uses the same actors in sort of a like traveling theater company rotation where they go in, you know, there's one actor will be in like three in a row, one will be in here and there. Like Henry Thomas, who plays one of Usher's kids, uh, he's in almost everything that Mike Flanagan has done. 
and is wonderful in this too. He's always playing a different character. Like in, he's in House of Bly Manor and he has this very thick British accent. He's like unrecognizable from the cokehead idiot kid of Roderick Usher's in this show that he plays. It sort of reminds me of when I was in high school, I went to the Ashland Shakespeare Festival and you see the big Shakespeare production and all these actors are, you know, top caliber and they're, they're doing their Shakespeare. And then the next day you go to a smaller theater and you see some of those same people doing a David Mamet play and they're completely different types of characters and everything. And it's, it's really fascinating to watch. And it's one of the reasons that I enjoy Mike Flanagan is that I get, you get to see these same people rotating in and out, playing completely different types of characters, and then sprinkles in new people. Like in this case, Mark Hamill, first timer, Mary McDonald plays the, uh, cutthroat sister of Roderick Usher, Madeline, who is always like the devil on his shoulder, telling him how to fuck everyone over all the time. Mary McDonald is is one of my favorites. It dances with Wolves. Obviously, she was uh, President Laura Roslin in Battlestar Galactica, one of my favorite TV shows in the history of humankind. She has a lot of scenes with Mark Hamill that I, I mentioned earlier. Mark Hamill... First time to the Mike Flanagan uh, Flaniverse, if you will, plays uh, the character that I, I told you his name, Arthur Pym. They call him the Pym Reaper in this show because he's the lawyer who fixes everything. Sort of a combination of Wilford Brimley in The Firm and Harvey Keitel in uh, Pulp Fiction and kind of looks like Tote from Raiders of the Lost Ark. And uh, Mark Hamill does this very like gruff voice. And, you know, he's a great voice actor, so he's always got a nice voice to go along. He's like unrecognizable vocally. Definitely uh, does not do a tote voice from Raiders of the Lost Ark. There's no... Uh... <laughs> Fraulein, uh, we, are, we are not thirsty. Certainly Dr. Jones told you there would be other interested parties. Uh, uh, he doesn't he doesn't do that uh, although he could I'm sure Mark Hamill could and he has this amazing scene at the end of the show I'm jumping around because again I'm assuming you saw it he has this amazing scene where he is talking with the raven now to get into the raven for just a moment we'll get back to the Hamill the raven is obviously uh, Edgar Allan Poe's most famous poem as I said that's a recurring character throughout the entire show, played by uh, the great Carla Gugino, who uh, is in a ton of Mike Flanagan stuff. Bly Manor, Hill House, Gerald's Game. She is another just incredible performance throughout the entire show because she's basically playing what she described prior to the actor's strike, not as the devil, not even as death itself, but more of fate and karma. So she's appearing in all of the episodes right before someone dies. She shows up because I guess she kind of is death, but whatever. She's fate. She's death. She's karma. She's this. She's that. She's not the devil. That's the, that's the one thing. She has compassion for people. She offers everyone sort of a choice. Do you want to do this or do you want to, you know, just live your life uh, however it was going to be lived, which may not be as uh, sexy and cool, but you know, you'll, you'll have your integrity. Everyone always takes her up on it. She'll tell them that there's going to be consequences. You know, you're going to get 
it's not going to end well for you, but in the meantime, you'll, you'll be able to get what you want. In the last episode, she offers Mark Hamill a deal, basically, where he can avoid prison because the, the whole family's been taken down. The kids are dead. They're going to lose the trial. He's going to be fucked because all of his immunity to legal action and never getting caught or discovered about anything is a reflection of the Usher family's power. It's not his own personal power. So if they get taken down, he's going to go down with them. And he gives this great reply to her about how he has lived his entire life without family, without friends, without any sort of assets that can be used as leverage against him. And even though he is this ruthless, mean character throughout the entire show, there's this humanity that comes out in him with the scene where there's this like mutual respect between the negotiator of fate, the raven. Her name is Verna in the, the show. So, you know, it's like anagram, a lot of that kind of thing. Where he just tells her, you know, look, I, I, I've lived my whole life without, you know, ever having a debt to somebody. I'm not going to do that now. And she's like impressed. She tells him something along the lines of, you know, it was, it, was, it was an honor to have this conversation with you because this is the first time that she's been turned down with her offers of fame and success and whatever you want, but you're going to pay a price. You're going to pay the price here on earth. You know, he says, like, what I sell my soul. You know, it doesn't work like that. It's not your soul. Something's going to happen in your life. Mark Hamill's character, the Pym Reaper, as, as awful a person as he is, he won't take the deal. He's going to just die in prison. She tells him that. He says, that, that's whatever. That's, that's what's going to happen to me. That's what's going to happen to me. It, it's, a, it's a wonderful scene. There's a, there's a lot of great acting in this show, as there always is with Mike Flanagan material. There's a, there's a, a, a speech that Bruce Greenwood, as Roderick Usher, makes about... Lemonade. The character of Augie, he starts to say something and the character of Augie says, when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. And Usher goes on this long speech about, no, you don't make lemonade. This is what you do with lemons. You talk, you know, you make them scarce and how to control lemons. It's very similar to sort of how the diamond industry was built and he compares it to diamonds. It's like three minutes. There's no cuts. Just him on screen doing this monologue. That's something Mike Flanagan does a lot. In, in episode six of Haunting of Hill House has, is an hour episode. It has four cuts. And it's horror. There's like ghosts and stuff that pop up, and yet there's four cuts. It's very much like stage writing. He writes very much like he's writing for the stage. And he gets the actors who have the caliber to pull that kind of thing off. So uh, getting back to the Poe connections, just for, for one more example... I think probably, uh, at least to me, one of the most famous stories that Poe has written is The Pit and the Pendulum. Episode 7 is called The Pit and the Pendulum. And this is sort of like the Mask of the Red Death example. It's, the Pit and the Pendulum is like takes place in the Spanish Inquisition. It, not a lot of similarities between this particular episode and that story. Uh, however, and uh, I, I got to give thanks to, to my parents again, my mom reminded me that, not, not that I'd ever seen it, but uh, told me that there is a Vincent Price movie of The Pit and the Pendulum. 1961, I looked it up. So it's a Roger Corman 
uh, adaptation of Edgar Allan Poe of the actual story. So if you're interested in that, and you know, it, you, it can't be Halloween without mentioning the great Vincent Price. So of course, he's done Poe adaptations. This episode, mainly the title. Last episode I'll mention in terms of the connections to Poe is uh, The Telltale Heart. That's another one. You hear that all the time, right? That episode is actually ties into the story that Edgar Allan Poe wrote about this guy who hears, he's constantly hearing this, this, this heartbeat. And in the episode, that happens to, again, one of Usher's kids that's about to die. In this case, it's, uh, it's one of his daughters who is uh, in the medical field and she's working on this heart thing that keeps hearts beating. That's like going to fix people's hearts. And she's testing it on monkeys and they're dying all the time. It doesn't work. But the raven shows up pretending to be this woman with a heart problem who desperately needs something. And the only thing left for her is to do a clinical trial of this heart thing. And, you know, again, she's making her offer. She's giving the daughter an out all the time. You could do the right thing or you can put this thing in my fucking heart that you know is going to kill me. And of course, the daughter, she goes the evil way. She's going to put the heart thing in. But she's not the surgeon. Her girlfriend is the surgeon. And, this, and she says, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to stick this thing in and fucking kill this lady. So the daughter freaks out and throws something at her in anger. And this is the grossest thing to me in the show. It's not super violent. There's some creepy, gory shit in it for sure. But to me, this episode was the grossest because she throws this thing at, at her girlfriend's head. It hits her. She's just trying to throw the thing at the wall or whatever, but it hits the girl smack on the back of the head, fastball down the middle. She falls down. Just can't, she won't stop bleeding out of her head on this marble floor. And she won't stop making these gurgling sounds with her eyes wide open. Oh, and she finally fucking dies. Finally. That to me was the grossest. So what she does is she, in order to uh, cover up the death, she sticks the goddamn heart thing on the dead girl's heart and like puts her in a room in her house and she can hear the heart ticking all the time, but she can't remember that she did it. It's it's very, very well done. There's a, a lot of paranoia, hearing things, things flashing, you know, uh, ghosts walking by, zombie-type uh, ghosts of his kids and stuff showing up for a second, then out of frame. Those are the things that Mike Flanagan is so good at. And, and it's not anything, like, revolutionary or new that he does. He just does everything so well, and he's very good at subversion. So, you know, to talk more about the scariness or creepiness or goriness of the show. Flanagan doesn't usually go in for gore. Like that, the girl lying on the floor dying for half a fucking episode is one of the most gory things he, he, he's done. In Mask of the Red Death, when they all die of the acid fucking water falling on them, uh, that's disgusting. Uh, Henry Thomas gets killed by this, a pendulum which it slowly, slowly, slowly works its way down until it slices him in half. And the reason he, and he, he's aware of all of it. And the reason that he can't do anything about it is because he became a fucking coke addict to try and deal with all the stress of the family. But they also had a drug 
that was like the drug from Serpent in the Rainbow. If you ever saw that movie, it's like a paralytic where you're, you're alive, but you can't move. Don't bury me. I'm not dead. So he's in Don't Bury Me, I'm Not Dead stage. And uh, he's watching this pendulum fall. It's about to kill him and he can't do anything about him. And who's there? Fucking Verna, the raven, dressed up as a construction worker, basically telling him like, hey, you know, the price, this is the price you pay. You know, you, you, you guys all had a fucking choice. Could have been this, could have been that. Instead, you're, uh, you accidentally, you were so coked up that you accidentally took a fucking paralytic and now you're about to get sliced in half, which he does. And it's gross. But there's a lot of things that Flanagan does where the grossness is implied or talked about, but you don't see it. Going back to, to Henry Thomas in a, in, in a scene prior to him dying, he's taking his, his wife's teeth out. He, well, he's about to take his wife's teeth out. Reason being, she went to that red death party and didn't tell him. And then he found out, but she was the only survivor somehow of the acid rain, but so she's burnt from head to toe. She's all wrapped up. It's gross. And, uh, he, he shoots the paralytic into her and then he is going to pull all of her teeth out one by one. And you're waiting for it to happen. Or at least I was, and I'm, I'm about to look away cause it's like teeth, uh, fucking when it's teeth, I can't deal with it, but they don't show it but they do show him getting chopped in half and they do show the people getting burnt up and they show that woman dying for three episodes in a row. Uh, not really, but it's, it's long. It's like four minutes of her dying. It's really, really gross to me, but there is not a lot of gore or jump scares in this show. It is really a elaborate soap opera. And I do, I say that not in a derogatory way. I say that it, that it is, it, it you know, the story of this family, all these intricacies that is surrounded by the vibe and inspiration of Edgar Allan Poe and the vibe and inspiration of horror. But it's not all horror. Like, I think it's categorized online as gothic horror, like drama, comma, gothic horror. I don't know about the gothic horror. I would say Hill House is probably drama, comma, gothic horror. But even that, it's, it's, it's not gross. And like I said before, what, what Flanagan does, it's, it's, it's nothing new. It's just that he does it in a very subversive way. Like you don't necessarily see things coming or you, you think you see something coming and then it doesn't come. Like I'm going to pull your teeth out. It's, it's going to be disgusting. I'm not going to show that. But my body's going to get cut in half. And you're wondering, well, the pendulum is swinging and it's about to cut him in half. Is it going to cut him in half? Are you going to see it? Yes. Oh, gross. Now, finally, to wrap it up with talking about the show itself, one of my favorite, absolute fucking favorite scenes in the show comes when Roderick Usher is finally having his come up and stay with the Raven. He's in his office. The family's being sued. All the kids are dead. And she starts talking about all of the people that died because of his drug mislabeling and false advertising and everything. And, and you start to see bodies falling in, in the window. He's up on a high floor in his big, you know, fucking tower of richness. And he's looking out the window and it's, it's raining and there's lightning and, and bodies are falling. And then more and more and more bodies are falling. But the way they do it is that they're falling in the dark. So you can kind of see them like shadowy. 
but then there'll be a, a, a lightning flash, and you'll see more and more and more bodies falling from the sky in the rain through a window from his point of view. It's so well done. It, like As a visual effect, probably not even the hardest thing to, to make happen if you're, a, if you're a VFX person, but it's so effective. I would also like to mention that the fucking music, music is always prime in, in Mike Flanagan stuff. The music is composed by the Newton brothers, although only one of them has the name Newton. And it's not James Newton Howard, if you were thinking that. It's not. They've done a ton of Mike Flanagan stuff, and it's always fantastic. Uh, Bly Manor, Oculus, other other things too. They did some Walking Dead. They actually did the music to uh, Five Nights at Freddy's, which is apparently very popular. You would think as a guy who has a show called Pop Talking Aliens that I would know more about it. I don't. I just know it's really popular. Matter of fact, I just really, I've heard of it. I, I only learned what its story is uh, this evening. So I, I, I can't give you any, any insight on that. I just review what I like. And I like Mike Flanagan stuff. Almost all of it. Really just save for Midnight Club, which, you know, Midnight Club isn't even bad. It's just not nearly up to the quality of, of his work as I consider it. Look, not everybody's a fan of his. I think the highest rating he's gotten on IMDb was for Hill House, which was, I think, 8.6, something like that. And I think uh, this was the most second popular, House of Usher, which is like an eight something. Last but not least, Kate Siegel. Uh, she's in goddamn everything that Mike Flanagan does because she is his wife. And she plays uh, Camille, who's like the PR spin doctor, total bitch, weird sexual fetishes. Um, who, who dies a, a grisly death at the hands of the raven who turns into a monkey and kills her. And again, gives her a choice. Yeah, you know, you don't have to be here. You can leave. You can leave or I can eat you. And Kate Siegel's like, ah, yeah, fucking do what you got to do. I've had mine. I think you've had yours and I've had mine in terms of discussing the fall of the House of Usher at this point. I thought it was fantastic, especially as a follow-up to Midnight Club where I thought uh, maybe Mike Flanagan's losing it. You know, he's very prolific. So a lot of times when you get someone who's just writing all the time and directing all the time, they can, they can start to uh, slip. Midnight Club, I'm, I'm giving him a mulligan on that, giving him a pass because I feel like Fall of the House of Usher was a return to form. It was not Haunting of Hill House, which one of my favorite horror stories of all time. And again, I am not a horror expert. I have not seen most of the horror classics, be them a Vincent Price movie, or a Stephen King adaptation. I've seen a lot, but I'm always looking for, like I said earlier, like I, I like kind of bad horror or horror that is actually drama as this is wrapped up in well-done horror, like The Conjuring, which I mentioned, obviously. The same type of thing. Human stories draped in horror, Scary aspects, chilling, suspense, but you know, I don't, I don't want to just see people getting fucking chopped up all the time, unless it's Michael Myers. I, I do love that franchise for some reason. I remember the first time I did a show about the, the Halloween franchise, uh, our, our friend, and this is what, the 15th mention of his name? I hope you're not playing a drinking game where you take a drink every time I say Charlie Crabtree, because if so, you're passed out fucking drunk. And uh, you know, if you need any help with that problem, let me know. Uh, Charlie Crabtree said, uh, I had no idea that you loved the Halloween franchise that much. And I, 
you know, said, yeah, it's kind of like a guilty pleasure. And I only watch those movies during Halloween. So it's not something I really run around talking about uh, until I had a podcast. And then I could talk about it all the time. So look, Mike Flanagan's become one of my faves in horror. And again, like I said, I'm not some fucking expert. So I'm sure you could tell me a billion things that are better, but whatever. I like what I like. I talk about that. I'm going to rank for you everything that I've seen of his in case you uh, have just entered into the world of Flanagan with Midnight Mass or Usher or you've only seen Hill House or whatever. Here's all the stuff he's done and I'm, I'll go worst to first starting, of course, no surprise, with uh, The Midnight Club being uh, last and least. That's a TV show for Netflix. Uh, second worst and this is it's not a bad movie at all is Gerald's Game which also has uh, the Raven Carla uh, Gugino and, and Bruce Greenwood that one's a lot like a play too because it just takes place in one room essentially the entire thing Stephen King adaptation but I, I'm going to put that second to last uh, third to last is a movie called Before I Wake memory kind of fuzzy on that one because I did not uh, didn't love it third, third to last because of that then we get to uh, Ouija, Origin of Evil. Henry Thomas, again, this one was also 2016. Mike Flanagan, between like 2016 and 2017, was just pumping out stuff. And I think that's why it's maybe not so much as good as uh, the stuff that he did later. After that, I'm going Absentia, which is uh, his first movie. It's a uh, very, very low budget, 2011. But I, I'd recommend it if you, if you like him because it's, it's, it's interesting to see what a filmmaker of you know, his notoriety at this point did with fucking no budget. Very, very good one. I'm not going to get into the plot of every single one. You can watch him if you want to. Next, Hush with uh, Kate Siegel. This one also kind of theatrical in the fact that it just takes place in this one house and she's, she's deaf and there's this guy trying to kill her in her house, but she can't speak. Very, very good. Suspense-wise, right up there with anything else he's done next oculus oculus 2013 it's about this this mirror i, I said i'm not going to describe the plot and then i do he, look if you've been listening to the show you know that i'm my word is not worth shit from moment to moment <laughs> oculus it's about this this fucking evil mirror and 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 you can't break it and it kills you it's it's Look, any time you describe a horror premise, it usually isn't, it sounds stupid, but this movie was very good. Oculus. Next up, Dr. Sleep. Dr. Sleep, I've read two Stephen King novels in their entirety in my life. One was The Shining because I was fascinated by the movie and hearing about how different it was from the book. And then Dr. Sleep because it was a sequel to The Shining. Read those in their entirety. Uh, I think Dr. Sleep is a great movie. And I think it, it complements The Shining, the movie, and The Shining, the book, and the book Dr. Sleep. Three for three. So now we get into uh, the TV shows. Because I think the TV shows are where Mike Flanagan's wheelhouse really is. The long-form storytelling, very, he's very suited to that. So, uh, well, Midnight Club, we already covered that one. Terrible. It's not terrible, it's just bad. The Haunting of Bly Manor. Haunting of Bly Manor was a follow-up to Haunting of Hill House. It's nothing like it, though. Yes, there's ghosts. Yes, there's a haunted house. That's about it in terms of the similarities. It's not anything like 
Haunting of Hill House, but it's really, really good. Next up, Fall of the House of Usher. Yeah, top three. Putting it at top three? I've already told you about it. I don't need to say anything else about it. Next, second to the top, Midnight Mass. Midnight Mass is, again, not something that has never been done before in terms of story. It's a pretty fucking straightforward vampire story. But the acting, the directing, the music, the writing, the way it, again, subversion, you know, making you think something's going to happen here, but it doesn't. And not doing it in a cheap way, not like a Ryan Johnson way, but doing it in a very organic way that tells a story but also subverts. It also, production-wise, Flanagan's always great with, like, the production value, but Midnight Mass has another quality that I've talked to multiple people about, and they've, they've all agreed. The world that it takes place in. It's just, it all takes place on this tiny island that's kind of isolated and it's, it's a fishing island. You could smell the sea salt. It's just so well done. It's so gritty and organic and, and real. And then yet there's vampires, but it all, it all works. It also has, and again, I think this is one of the reasons I, 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 I dig this dude so much. The dialogue is so well done Again, there's like, you know, seven minute monologues, no cuts, that kind of thing. One of the, I pointed this out when I reviewed it, but there are some conversations about recovery in uh, Midnight Mass that just take place between two people sitting in a room that are some of the best exchanges about recovery from addiction, from alcohol that I've seen on screen, including movies that are literally about that. And Midnight Mass is not, it's not even about that. It's just like part of one of the characters' backstory. And they, they take it on a bit. Mike Flanagan is openly recovered, in recovery, however you like to say it, uh, from, from alcoholism. So he writes that into a lot of stuff. Uh, Hill House has a ton of that. Even uh, House of Usher, it's not, a, it's not as much of an aspect of it as, it as it tends to be in other things that Flanagan's done recently. But there is, it is part of it. Uh, Roderick Usher has this like trophy wife, but, but her trophy is not that she's like young and hot. Well, I mean, she, you know, she's good looking and stuff, whatever. But her, the, the trophy part of her is that she is the person in the world who has taken the most amount of his opioid and is like doing fine on it because she used to be a heroin addict. And she got uh, injured and they started giving her his opiate and she can withstand like incredible amounts of it. And so he marries her so he can like prop her up and then she wants to get off it. And he's like, no, you can't get off it. Like you're, you're my poster child. And then after he dies at the end, she's the only one left living. So she inherits all the money and she recovers and she starts all these recovery centers. So there, it, it does touch on that, but it's not as much of a, an aspect as like, Hill House, Midnight Mass. Speaking of Hill House, there's your number one, ladies and gentlemen. Hill House, 10 episodes, every one of them great, in my opinion. And that's why uh, I'm such a fan of Flanagan. I'm going to stop talking about how much I love the guy. I mean, Jesus Christ, you know, it's not like he's my, my, uh, my fucking brother or something like that. But I do, I do enjoy his work because, again, like if you're looking for jump scares and crazy new horror stuff that you've never seen before. He's not, he's not going to deliver you that. It's going to be stuff you've seen before, but it's done differently and it's done in a different context to surround a, a human drama. 
It is a far cry from the cheesy, shitty horror movies that I enjoy so much. Uh, or even, uh, obviously, Hubie Halloween, which I love. Or the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror episodes, which I absolutely love. I could do a whole show on that. Maybe next Halloween episode, if I'm, if I'm still doing this, if there's anybody left listening, I'll, I'll make that the centerpiece. Since there will be no Mike Flanagan or uh, Mike Myers stuff coming out. So we'll, we'll talk Simpsons next year. I hope to God, or whatever's up there, or out there, or in you, in your heart, in your telltale heart, that uh, you're not wishing that I had talked about The Simpsons this episode because the, you know you didn't like the, the House of Usher stuff. That's my hope. My other hope, as always, is that you have a wonderful Halloween, have a great time, sit back and uh, you know have a cup of hot chocolate and watch a horror movie or, or a comedy or uh, whatever. Go trick-or-treating with your, with your wonderful kids. Enjoy the holiday that asks nothing of you. And that is Halloween, ladies and gentlemen. It only gives. It doesn't take. It's Halloween. Happy Halloween. Cue the hot chick. Pop Talk and Aliens, the William Clear Podcast.